Yes, given our appetite for travel, adventure and work overseas, staff at Australia's embassies and consulates are a vital connection for those who've been robbed or injured or hospitalised or worse, arrested, detained, kidnapped. We could go on. Ian Kemish was head of Australia's consular services from 2000 and he's written a personal account, he's a diplomat by training, that takes us to the consular front line of some of the most difficult events faced by Australians overseas, like the Bali bombings. Ian's book is called The Consul and it provides a recent history and rare insight into the events and the challenges and I might add the expertise of the people he's worked with whose job it is to support us when crises happen. Ian, welcome to Saturday Extra. Just great to be with you, Geraldine. Ian, having just returned from overseas, I can attest to the chaos and the dramas and the delays of international travel right now. People think it's bad here. It's nothing like over there. I can imagine there'll be some Australians in trouble, frankly, turning up at our embassies, expecting help from the consular services when things go wrong. Does this sound familiar to you? It absolutely does. Uh, Like you, I've just returned from an international trip, but there was a lot of disruption along the way, a lot of rearranging along the way. And in a small way, uh, our own experience reflects a broader pattern for Australian international travel right now. There's this extraordinary pent-up demand that's being released for travel at the moment. I've been talking to former colleagues in DFAT recently and You know, you look back just to April this year and we had 300,000 Australians departing on holiday, family uh, trips for work commitments. Well in excess of that number of seats on flights departing the country were sold in June and we're seeing record numbers, all-time record numbers of passport applications at the moment. So... We haven't quite reached the numbers pre-pandemic. I mean, back in 2019, 11 million Australians left the country on trips that year. It's less than half that rate at the moment. But that number, less than half the the number who were travelling in 2019, is generating about 15% more work. Why? For consular support and services. Look, I, I think perhaps... COVID illness, especially in countries where the hospital systems don't compare with Australia's, leads Australians to turn to the service for help. The isolation requirements and the disruption associated with COVID. Expectations have increased, I think, um, but there are also, sadly and importantly, mental health issues. You know, the Australian Institute of Health and Wellbeing back here says that in Australia itself, we're seeing about a 20% increase in the number of people who are turning to Beyond Blue for help. This applies in the the cohort of people who are travelling abroad as well. And there's nothing to prevent, and nor should there be, those who are dealing with mental illness from travelling. And in some cases, if they're off their medication, they can find themselves in quite serious trouble and turning to our embassies abroad. And what a complex sort of challenge, for which I don't suppose there's much rehearsal or training, really. Oh, look, I think the consular staff staff are provided with training. They're they're not expert, but they are provided with uh, some support for dealing with those sorts of situations. And don't get me wrong, I think, and I certainly hope, that people who are managing mental health issues generally have a very positive experience of travel. But these things happen. 
Okay, no one's written, I don't think, this before from the sort of this more diplomats regarded as the more prosaic end of their lives, but you make it quite plain that that's not the case. Like prior to the pandemic, one third of travellers were ignoring official warnings to take out travel insurance. Now, I assume that has increased post-pandemic, but I wonder if you can tell me if that's the case. I've read recently that um, about one in six Australians are still not taking out travel insurance for international travel. I mean, that is absolutely lunacy. (laughs) Yeah. And if that's the case, it's better than it once was, but it's certainly good enough. It is lunacy. People tend to think about uh, travel insurance in terms of covering flight cancellations or accommodation cancellations or um, lost luggage. But to be honest, those are the least important reasons to take out travel insurance. The cost of illness, hospitalisation and, in worst-case scenarios, death overseas can be disastrous, devastating. I've certainly known back in my time running the service of elderly parents who've had to remortgage their own homes in order to ensure that their loved ones, their children, were looked after abroad and repatriated. Now, it can be a shock to people sometimes that the Australian government can't simply step in and cover all of this. But of course, that's what travel insurance is for. No one's going to be left to die if the Australian government knows about it um, and they will step in. But any financial outlay really does need in any reasonable world to be, you know, in the form of a loan and subject to repayment by the family concerned. Would you prefer then that before people were allowed to leave the country, this sounds very punitive, I know, but should there be an you know, a mandatory requirement, a bit like third-party car insurance, that you just have to have some? I don't think I'd call for that. I think that would be a a pretty big call, but I think that the encouragement has to be really strong. Um, Governments over time have sought to limit the amount of consular assistance they will provide to people who have not taken out travel insurance. This is tricky, is a tricky area. When people find themselves in serious difficulty, no one wants to turn their back. Mm -hmm. And putting limits on Australian outbound travel, well, we've had that, haven't we, (laughs) in recent times and Mm. uh, in a quite unusual way, and I certainly wouldn't be calling for it. Maybe you could take us to the front line of the consular branch of DFAT, which is the proper term. Maybe it is useful to spell out exactly what a consular service does. So we have at headquarters in Canberra a division of people who coordinate, guide and support the work of Australian consuls assigned to our embassies overseas. So each of our embassies or high commissions have officers who do this work, who step forward when Australians encounter very serious trouble abroad. And I must say, there are many people who are surprised by consular work. People like me who joined the Department of Foreign Affairs with very, very different ideas in mind, with uh, ideas about engaging with exotic cultures, um, uh, accompanying senior leaders, negotiating treaties, all that stuff. I actually did all that in my career, but the bit that surprised me was this consular work. 
Well, expectation management is obviously critical here. There's a, there's a funny, I think, part of your book where you talk about expectation management, which is perceived to be a problem around the world with um, governments managing uh, citizens' expectations. And, uh, for instance, um, Egypt blew up, you know, with uh, Tahrir Square and so on and the Arab Spring. And also Libya. Libya fell apart. And the government ended up, our government ended up, I think under Prime Minister Rudd, sponsoring charter flights to evacuate Australians from Cairo and also funded evacuation voyages from Syria. Some of those on the Qantas charter flight out of Cairo asked whether they'd be awarded frequent flyer points. That's right. And in the 2006, I think it was, um, evacuation from Lebanon, we had a few people who, having experienced the sea voyage to Cyprus and then were being organised onto Qantas charter flights, onward flights, explained carefully to the consular officials that they were speaking to that they actually only flew business class. You know, it, there's, <laughs> oh, isn't it? there is a little bit of that. But look, let, let me be really clear here. We're talking about a very small minority of Australians. Australian travellers are reasonable, independent, well-resourced, thoughtful people. Um, it is hard sometimes, though, when you're doing this work to remember that because the people you're confronted with are often the exception to that rule. And that's what we're talking about here. And a bit desperate, no doubt, and frightened. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And for some of them, in all seriousness, the moment they encounter a consul is the very worst moment of their lives. Sure. And, and so just to make it clear, by and large, if one needs the help of the Australian government via the consular, consular assistance, do you have to pay for whatever comes after that? I mean, what, what is the understanding? I mean, you know, if the government puts on a, a charter flight, is that at the government's cost or do you have to contribute or what? The principle of, of cost recovery is applied whenever possible. The truth is that sometimes it's not possible. In some cases, the government can simply decide that its often stated principle of cost recovery will not apply. I had a particular experience of it with a very significant evacuation of Australians from Solomon Islands. The initial view was that the Australians who were evacuated amidst quite serious civil unrest um, were often people who had not taken the opportunity to leave under their own steam previously. And even though they were being evacuated by the Australian Defence Force in a naval vessel, that they should in some way contribute to that cost. The Australian public and the Australian media reacted uh, very strongly to this notion and the government of the day backed away from it. And I think this brings in an important point. The understanding around these issues um, between the Australian public and government has no legal form. There are guidelines, there are policies, there are no legal rights in particular. And the way this work is done is in the end, an expression of what we as a nation think is reasonable. It is a situation where you have the government responding to public expectation. So there is an element of shifting sand in this. Where do you think it should end up? Yeah, what is your prediction then about the general approach of the consular service? I think it needs to settle a little. I think that we have, are at a peak moment in terms of the level of servicing that does take place. I don't think it's quite the moment to have that conversation, though, because right now the world is a complicated place. We have seen some serious challenges for Australians abroad over the course of the last few years. The COVID era in particular was a very difficult period. We had Australians 
stranded abroad as a result of government decision back home. You had the consular service squeezed in the middle trying to do what it could to help people, evacuate people back to Australia and so on. We've also seen the evacuation from Afghanistan. We've seen the the war in Ukraine, which has had an impact on many Australians. I think that there needs to come a time, though, that we recommence the, the national conversation about what Australians need to do for themselves. And that point we were talking about before, travel insurance, is central to it. Mm. In fact, you and your family have been the recipients of consular services. It's not, this is not just a remote thought. Could you tell us about your friend and brother-in-law with whom you began your career? Yeah, sure. So Roger Strickland was a boy from rural Western Australia who joined <coughs> the Australian Foreign Service with me. Uh, he was my best mate. He was this endearing, very good-looking, former ABC journalist, by the way, uh, guy who charmed everybody he met and was by far the most popular member of my intake. We were all in our, in our mid-twenties at the time. I introduced him slightly unwittingly to my uh, sister-in-law. Um, there'd been a bit of a discussion between my wife and my sister-in-law about how much she'd like Roger and my sister-in-law being who she was. When she met Roger for the very first time down in Melbourne at a, at a, at a bar, said to him, hello, I hear we're getting married. And they did. And, you know, Roger and Chrissy went on a posting to Vanuatu. Roger was killed in, a, in an air crash. Mm. He shouldn't have been on the plane concerned. He, mm. It was a, a light, light plane uh, in Vanuatu on a Spirito Santo. And, you know, we were on posting in Brunei. His now widow, Chrissy, was um, in Vila, of course. And the family, particularly uh, Roger's parents and his wife, had to be stepped through in our company, the very difficult process associated with, you know, identification of the corpse and and repatriation of remains. So it was an experience that we had well before I took on the consular work, but it had a bit of an impact on me. It introduced me to our consular colleagues and helped me understand, I think, uh, the importance of human empathy and, and care. Yes, Roger was one of DFAT's own, but I'm very, very confident, based on decades of experience, that the um, approach just doesn't differ. No, and, and it's obviously it did make a powerful impact on you just about the care that can be shown in extremists. Mm-hmm. Now, you do oh. write, in that one of the fundamental rules of the consular world was turned on its head in the aftermath of the September 11 attacks. In fact, you then go on to talk about the reality of, of this, in a sense, when the Bali bombings occurred in 2002. And it's it quite powerful in the way you write about what happened behind the scenes to respond suddenly, so suddenly, rung at 2.30 in the morning for, by the um, ambassador to the Indonesia, waking you and your wife up in Australia. The carnage, the death, the grief on the ground. When you reflect on that, what are your prime memories? It was such a sad and awful time uh, for the people who were directly impacted. And our first thought needs to be for the families of the victims of that atrocity. The 20th anniversary is approaching, by the way, and it will be very much in the hearts and minds of a lot of people who lost somebody in Bali. Uh, For those of us in the consular service, it was a difficult period, but I also look back with some pride when I think about how 
a group of Australian men and women, including particularly from the consular service, but also from the Australian Federal Police, from the Defence Force, responded to that situation. It was unprecedented. It was not only a crisis taking place in another country, it was a national crisis. Not only did we lose 89 of the of the dead, you know, many more Indonesians and, and there were others, but also Australia was the country that had the capacity to conduct a very swift and efficient aeromedical evacuation. My role was to coordinate all that, working with, with others, and people really stepped forward. Not just Australian officials, by the way. The volunteers who just turned up at the consulate in Bali to help were extraordinary. What people who were living there, they were expats or they were travellers, they just turned up? Exactly. Uh, doctors who happened to be visiting, nurses who happened to, to live there, uh, others who just wanted to be helpful. It really was an extraordinary response. And we found ourselves evacuating back to Australia, all the, the, the serious victims of those bombings. So we not only evacuated Australians, we evacuated everybody. We evacuated Indonesians from Indonesia. And I say it was a national crisis. Our hospitals, first Darwin Base Hospital and then Perth and Brisbane and so on, found themselves dealing with an unprecedented number of Burns victims. We also, by the way, had people walking into casualty wards in Australia having flown out on charter flights back to Australia. It was quite the time. It was quite the time. Look, I can't let you go without putting your PNG hat on. You were the High Commissioner to Papua New Guinea from 2010 and you lived there as a child and uh, you wrote in the book that the posting was half-jokingly referred to as a kind of punishment. Now, we're just seeing, we just heard about death of a young woman by a, a bullet. It's still a bit difficult to discern exactly what's happened there. But obviously, this election is proving to be a complicated issue. Um, what would you like to see change about the way we engage with PNG? I'd like to see the Australian public participating more in this relationship. Australians tend to forget that Papua New Guinea's there. This is a place where the mainland is 3.6 kilometres from the nearest Queensland island. So what would be great to see is a little bit more public participation in the relationship with Papua New Guinea uh, through people-to-people -people links, cultural links, sporting links. There's plenty of opportunity and I just wish that Australians knew a little bit more about it. Well, Ian Kemish, congratulations on getting this all down and making it readable. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Geraldine. It's been great. And Ian Kemish, K-E-M-I-S-H, is the author of The Consul, an insider's account from Australia's diplomatic frontline. It's being launched at the Lowy Centre in Sydney on Thursday. Thanks for your company and texts. Thanks to Sky Doherty, Belinda Summer and Jackie Dent. I'm Geraldine Doog. Have a lovely day. Jonathan Green coming up next. Bye-bye for now. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.